Hello and welcome. Today I am joined by Andy Franklin Miller. So Andy's a doctor, but he is currently Chief Medical and Innovation Officer at Neuritas. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing about his journey and what he's moved into now. So Andy, thank you for joining. Uh, absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So whereabouts are you? I know you've been travelling around a fair bit recently. So where are you? Where are you speaking from? Um, I'm speaking from London. Um, and uh, my role currently is split between Dublin, London, and it's fair to say the rest of the world, um, which is, is which is really exciting. Um, but it's a it's a work from home day, and uh, it's a it's a pleasure to be talking to you. Great. So yeah, so talk to me about your current role. I know it's a really recent thing that you've done, and I've known you from your work in in uh, Sanctuary. But just talk to me about what you're doing now. Sure. Um, I I broadly left medicine. I uh, we'll talk a bit maybe about my my career in general, but but currently I'm chief medical and innovation officer at, at Neuritas. It's a it's a biotech uh, company. Um, in essence, what we do is combine artificial intelligence and machine learning platforms uh, to identify peptides um, from a natural source. So so not synthetic peptides, but but a natural source, um, and and look to find a human application uh, as a supplement or as a food source. And and one of our uh, current product is uh, PeptiStrong, uh, and it's peptides that work on muscle uh, production and increase uh, rate of muscle, both force amplification and muscle turnover and, and muscle growth, uh, but also anti-inflammatory effects. And, and we've taken that through clinical trials uh, into commercial sales, and we've um, PeptiStrong within GNC products um, and about to, to launch in Europe with a, a range of products. So we're, we're um, B2B rather than B2C. And um, I have my, my role covers everything from the proteomics mass spectroscopy laboratory through biology, through data science, machine learning, through the regulatory minefield that's introducing products into the into the food chain, uh, along with with legal, but also a lot of work with venture capital uh, and the company direction over um, our next series C funding and the like. Yeah, no, that 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 sounds like quite an in-depth but exciting challenge. So, what made you want to move into sort of that type of role? Do you know what? I, I think as a physician, you are limited in your ability to create impact. I've spent the last ten years uh, prior to this building sports medicine for the sports surgery clinic in in Dublin, um, and we've taken that from five hundred patients a year to close on fifty thousand patients a year, um, and we were successful. You know, both as a business, but also um, uh, from a research perspective, and we published 40 papers or so, particularly on biomechanics um, of, of rehabilitation and trying to take big data and, and engineer a solution whereby there was less variation. So I, I'd always thought that rehab was a very um, subjective tool, unlike maybe oncology or, or cardiology even, where you, you had some hard, fast data that you could use to guide your, your treatment. We don't have a blood test. We don't have a screen in hematology for rehabilitation. We don't have objective data. We we wiggle the leg or we look at someone and say, hey, that's how to how it works. So so biomechanics was the ability to get 250,000 data points per second of, of movement and see if we could take some um, artificial intelligence, some neural network um, and mind mapping to see if we could identify features that could affect rehabilitation. And that journey was taking us a long, a long way. And, and I began to understand how we could use data to, to give better clarity and objectivity. But when it came down to it, 
yes, we could scale the business, we could open another clinic, we could we could see more patients. But, but through COVID, we looked at you know the, the huge impact metabolic cardiovascular longevity has on the, the population as a whole. And so I ran a clinical trial for Neuritas, um, saw the potential benefits, and and really it's the opportunity to help millions, potentially billions of people is, is irresistible. It, and and it, it takes away that limitation of face-to-face -face contact and, and needing to be able to see someone in order to diagnose and prescribe that, that medicine will never give on, on its own. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and was that the, you mentioned about the business elements and sanitary, an amazing success. Everyone really speaks very highly of it. So was that something that had you always been interested in the business aspect of things and uh, and that side of it as well, alongside the clinical? I, I think my journey is interesting. I, I started as a rowing coach. And, and so when I left school, I was very fortunate to be coaching two, two guys who were very talented. Um, and I took two years out between school and university and I and I coached those guys and they rode for the Great Britain junior men's team. Um, that got me an opening and I, I was a young 19 year old coach coaching ultimately senior athletes within the Great Britain program and went on to coach at the junior world championships um, and then under 23s and then carried that on through medicine. And, and my interest in in science was stimulated by my want for crews to go faster. So I, I started a degree at Newcastle University in, in physiology and microbiology after a year transferred to what was then Charing Cross and Westminster Hospital Medical School that became Imperial um, and, and coached through that and so I was lucky enough to coach um, St Paul's School in, in Barnes in London to win the Princess Elizabeth at uh, Henley uh, and at the same time I was coaching Imperial College and half of that squad went on to, to win gold in the men's eight um, in the Sydney Olympics so I'd been around rowing and performance um, and so sports medicine would, would have been a natural fit, but yet I, I joined the Royal Navy um, in the middle of medical school. Um, and someone asked me actually last week why, and I think it was the challenge. It was the opportunity to do something a different way to everybody else and the, and the, the rush to get fellowship in, in exams and medicine is, a, is a, an ongoing learning process. And, and I think the rush for exams didn't appeal. I have to say that actually, after my first house job, I changed my mind in, and I was desperate to get on with those exams and the military stopped me from doing it. But, but when I look back now, it was a good thing. But, but I did 16 years in the, in the Navy and um, three years with the Royal Marines, um, deploying and, and learning where really you are a, you're thrown at the deep end. You're, you're a GP who's got no training. You've just done your medical training. Um, and then you're responsible for a medical center, a thousand or 2000 men uh, at the time, now men and women. And um, and you've got to provide a solution. And I, and I love that. It was one of the most exciting parts of my early career was you had it was you and the resources you had and you had to provide a solution. And, and I learned a lot from that. And I, I went back into hospital training after that three years, started as a thoracic surgeon, but then was very fortunate to be offered uh, the men's team doctor role for British rowing and the Navy thought that was a great idea. Um, but that didn't really fit with thoracic surgery, who wanted 22 hours a day uh, of your life. And so I, I changed tack to general practice uh, so I could work around the rowing and, and combine both uh, for a while before starting the, the, the range of military jobs that it offers you outside of medicine. So I, I, I've done everything from look at infection rates in Royal Marines from a microbiology perspective, 
to look at smoking rates uh, within the Navy, to be a, an advisor on swine flu and the management within the Southwest, through to being a, a ball officer to, to looking after beagles, to being the principal medical officer at, at Britannia Royal Naval College. So, so the diversity of my job, I think, set me, set me well. And, and it's always been interesting. Where does business come in? Um, I think business comes in eventually for, for want of a change. I, I'm, I'm a natural problem solver and I, I want to provide solutions. And one of my biggest frustrations is seeing either wastage of manpower in the sense that people are, are not given the tools to do their job um, or that there, I think there's a better way to do something. And so after a, a brief um, spell in Aspatar, I was recruited to, to the sports surgery clinic um, to, to build a practice within an orthopedic hospital. And, and on face value, that sounds pretty easy. You kind of think, listen, we've got 40 orthopedic surgeons. Um, surely there's a lot of sports medicine um, available. Um, but it was actually a pretty big challenge because orthopedic surgeons are um, proprietary in many respects you know that everyone's an independent practitioner it's not like a big practice so so patients are your revenue stream and and sports medicine it's a new specialty it, it's it's raison d'etre is to avoid operations to to create activity and provide a, an exercise based solution and, and i thought it was a better way and so i the navy gave me the skills undoubtedly in terms of leadership and management training um, and and I've I've been very fortunate to find mentors along the way that to enhance that from a business and commercial aspect. Um, and working with the likes of PwC and McKinsey uh, to to gain insights that I wouldn't otherwise have have gained. Um, but I think it's always been there. Like it's a, it's a quest to do things better uh, rather than rather than continue in someone else's role. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to unpick there, and it's just to so go going back to just where, where how you started out. So, you, are you from London originally? No, I'm actually from Newcastle. Um, not right. that you guess. <laughs> not that you guess. But um, yeah, so I went I went to school in Newcastle, um, and my mother's Norwegian. Uh, the the school was very formative in in many respects. Uh, I think I learned a lot at school. I wasn't by any way the most academic. Um, I wouldn't have got into medical school uh, without coaching. And and I think when I look back, I think medical school suffers a lot by its admission criteria. I think it's got worse. I'm very fortunate to sit on on a number of panels for for interviewing for medical students um, for for acceptance. And and the way medicine's gone is is unbelievably competitive and therefore incredibly academic. And and I wasn't that academic. Um, I I struggled, if I'm honest, at school in terms of maths and physics, uh, which is somewhat ironic now that I work within a very mathematics field uh, and have a PhD in biomechanics. But um, it it people develop at different rates, and I think the the acceptance of, of education is interesting. We you know we expect people to be a jack of all trades, um, which we learn later on in life is is unrealistic. You know, if someone shows a natural aptitude in art or a natural aptitude in computer science, why do we force them to do other stuff? Why does language, why do language learning or why does physics become vital for the artist or the musician or, or the actor? It, it makes no sense to me. And and so I, 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 I value education a lot, 
but I think the mode of education needs to change significantly. So then for, for when you were so you're in Newcastle and then how did you become a rowing coach then? So great story. Um, there was a physics teacher at the school, a guy called Roger Terry, um, who was had, had introduced rowing to a school which wasn't a natural rowing school. It was a rugby school. Um, and he had a very good program. He'd taken, page, uh, taken people to, to Great Britain rowing before. Um, and you could start rowing um, in what was then the fit was then this um, fourth form. So GCSEs or, was, was when you could start rowing. I started rowing because friends of mine at the time said it was a great ticking the box to get into university um, and, um, and took to it, loved it, absolutely loved it. I loved the, the fatiguing elements of it, the, the complexity, and actually now the physics of it, but, but at the time it was just hard. Roger left um, in my, after I finished my GCSEs um, and they couldn't find anybody else to take over. And so the, rightly or wrongly, I took over coaching. Um, and so did it very ad hoc through my upper and lower sixth. Um, they, they had a couple of masters in charge of rowing who weren't coaches. Um, but I went through a whole set of formal coaching qualifications uh, with the Amateur Rowing Association and was clearly a novelty because, you know, I was learning to coach among teachers primarily, but, but people who were 10, 15, 20 years older than me. Um, and so this novelty was really useful. And I, I therefore broadened my knowledge and started to coach at the school and outside of the school. Um, and then when I was due to leave post A levels, school said well hang on we've got some pretty good rowers what are we going to do and and i was offered a job so i i went back as a member of staff to the school the royal grammar school in newcastle straight away which was bizarre in a way you know like you know my parents had struggled to pay the fees it, it i was going back as a teacher it was a it was a, a great opportunity to guess learn how things worked and I think that's very formative, you know, to see the school structure from one side and the next day to be in the master's common room, seeing it from the other side and, and have those relationships change instantaneously was fantastic. And look, in many schools, you know, do that very well. My kids go to Millfield in, in Somerset and, and Scott Draw is down there as, as head of sport or head of performance. And they've got some great, um, new grad or post-school leaver programs that really embed young coaches within the environment and I think everyone benefits from it I think it's a really a really positive thing yeah no absolutely and yeah I know I know Millfield I know one of the tennis coaches that was there and incredible facilities as, as quite a few of these setups do so for you then so if you hadn't have taken that job what, what were you going to do um it, it's a good question I didn't I didn't have the grades to get into medical school and so, so my logic was do a, do a basic science degree uh, in physiology. And my head was make my crews go faster. But, but rowing coaching was it. I, I wanted to be a rowing coach. It was, it was my, and still is in many respects, my passion. Um, at the time, careers in it were pretty few and far between. And so it would have been a very piecemeal existence. The, the Amateur Rowing Association at the time had, had a, natural, a, a national structure of regional coaches. Um, in terms of development, but I, I was about winning. I wasn't about teaching people to row necessarily. And um, and so I guess the path would have been into schoolboy rowing uh, or schoolgirl rowing, and I would have ended up as, as, a, as, a, as a teacher of rowing, I, I think is probably what would have happened. Um, 
the two years out allowed me into a into a national team structure. I gave me insight into into where I was going, and and that drove me through that coaching path. I applied to to Charing Cross, who who had a a dean who was a big rower, um, uh, Roger Greenhalge, who who said, yeah, you know, there's a place here, an unconditional place, if you coach rowing, and I coached the women's part of the club for a year, um, and I, I'm very grateful to him for that opportunity because I wouldn't have got it without it. And I, I, I lament the lack of that opportunity now. Isn't it interesting, though, that so many people I've had this chat with, even I was chatting with Pippa Bennett yesterday, and she was saying, well, I'm not the most academic, but I you kind of your network or you speak to someone, you're given an opportunity. And then so many of the people I chat to that really impressive roles, done amazing things, but all of them are saying a lot of the same things, which does go back to your point about, I suppose maybe people do find a way through, but how many people are being lost from the purely looking at the academics? Yeah, I think you learn from failure. You know, we touched on that, pre, you know, pre-call. I, I, I think, I think you need to fail in life, and and I think people are very frightened to fail. And and I failed repeatedly. Um, I've made bad decisions. I've I've given time whereby there's there's very little return, or I've exposed myself to risk that I really shouldn't have. But every step along the way, you, you learn, and. And I guess was I setting myself up for a, a medical career now, you'd approach things very differently. And and if you if you want to make an impact in people's lives, certain specialties are very hard to do that from. Um, and, and no one teaches you that. There's no there's no go to medicine. And I, I think it's very similar in, in virtually every industry. Unless you've got contacts within that industry, it's very difficult to actually understand how to succeed in it or how to set yourself up. You don't need to look at, at Google's hiring structure um, to understand that for the vast proportion of people, you need four languages for most of their roles that, that are high earning. How do you know that? You don't know that. And so how many people at school identify that actually they want a successful career within, within tech that, that works across Europe, that multiple languages are a significant advantage? We look down on people who struggle with languages and, and we don't have the capability to, to switch. My kids have been in school in, in England, in Australia, in Ireland and, and, the, and now back in the UK. And, and being able to, to continue a language from one curriculum to another was impossible. You know, they were learning German and, and Japanese in Australia, went to Ireland, had to learn Irish, um, came back to, to the UK and, and Latin and French. The, the continuity of education in terms of what ultimately happens is is not there and i think you know the, the ability to understand what a job needs is the bit that's that's missing and it's left to the individual and i think if you're not willing to fail then you get stuck within a stream that's actually pretty difficult sometimes to get out of yeah i definitely definitely agree and like even just with the, the conveyor belt that you're on in school of you know you go through gcse's a levels that's like if you've not done that you're almost all right there then they're not, you know, we, we used to recruit purely if someone had a degree and now I'm completely the other way. It's like, well, it's based on the personality and what they can bring. And it's more about the energy, I guess, that, that we look at really or um, the attitude. So, yeah. And, and, I, and I share that. And I think one of the best performing teams I've worked with was under John Fletcher in England rugby and the under 18 setup. And, and, and Fletch had a, 
he was he's a natural type a um yellow personality he makes you smile and he makes you engaged no matter what he's doing and he built a team around age group rugby which was really the Stuart Lancaster pathway um and and built a phenomenal hierarchy of success through under 18s and under 20s that vanished as as the hierarchy was changed um but he built a team that evolved around to some extent insights profiling so he had his reds his yellows his greens and his blues and he, and he built a team around it and it was the first time at interview i've been asked about emotional intelligence and i think the our our underselling of emotional intelligence is incredibly remiss i think people's skill sets to do a certain job it's around what they've learned in their life and and some people are brilliant at being able to engage with people of all sorts of walks of life all sorts of levels of intelligence and others can't and and if you put someone who can't in a in a in a front-facing role you're setting them up to fail and i think it's really difficult and i try to bring that that element of recruitment through to ssc um there but it it's it's an ongoing challenge because when you're in a medical model there are certain benchmark skills you need to have in order to build that team and and there's no shortage in sport, particularly in S&C, of red personalities. Do you know, that it, there's plenty of them. Um, in terms of the yellow, the green, and the blue, how do they fit into a commercial environment, which is not sport? It's a challenge, and it's, it's difficult to find people to fit. Um, Physiotherapy is the same. Medicine, medicine's a strange, uh, a strange fit, because what will make a good research doctor doesn't necessarily make a good commercial private doctor. And you know, for ten years, I spent totally in the private space, and and it's a different requirement. It's it's a service industry, and that ultimately comes down to it. You have to be able to serve your ultimate clients, and I think it's a it's a challenge. But I learned a lot from Fletch. It's uh, it, his approach to to building that team and taking something outside of the base tenets of what you needed is was remarkable. And he had a phenomenal relationship with many of the current senior team who who progressed through that pathway. Um, based on it in terms of empowering the individual to, to understand their strengths and weaknesses from an EI point of view, as well as from a rugby point of view. Yeah, no, no, I think that's that's really interesting. And someone else was talking about that regime as well and saying it was like some really, really good things that went on. Yeah. And uh, just to reflect on that, we we recruit, we've had a lot of graduate sports therapists that work for us and we, we recruit, whether it's a rehab, physio, and we've just found that like, physios again just from our experience it comes in with a very different personality type to sports therapists and rehabbers which maybe they're not able to go down the conventional route and they've got to adapt and they've got to be add those extra skill sets on because they're not hcpc and they've worked really really well for us was we've not we've never we've, we've employed them as contractors physios but they've never been part of the organization because personality fit was just better in in my view in the um, the rest of the team's view to to fit in with what we wanted in terms of versatility and and um, what is just in the way the way that we work. And, and I think it goes back to to that competitive landscape. You know, it, it, for for whatever reason, um, physio is incredibly competitive to get into, and so then you, if the benchmark is academics, you you start to lose the reds and the yellows, and you go towards the blues and the greens who are driven by success within that academic field because that's what where their success has come from and i think it's it's difficult to deviate from the norm clearly people do there's no you know this is not it's not an identical structure but but it's it's an interesting challenge to cross um 
And it comes back to education, which is where we're starting. You know, you know, we expect people to be excellent across the breadth. We don't allow deviation from the norm and, and people follow the same model. And, and you know, I guess that's why, why the apprenticeship model in some countries works so well, because you can take someone who's very driven and vocation, I think, is the wrong word because actually vocation doesn't necessarily mean a trade. It doesn't necessarily mean a, a direction. But, but I often think, you know, for many of, of, of the guys that end up in, in, let's say, general practice, that general practice journey could start very early on through medical school. Um, if you want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon, there's an awful lot of stuff that's, that's not necessarily needed through medical school because the end result doesn't require the various component parts. And so the question is, what do we train? And I think it goes back through to, the, to, to secondary education. What are we training for? Is it just a set of hurdles to occupy time? And are we artificially therefore ranking people? And you only need to see the, the, the trouble with Ofsted at the moment in terms of how schools themselves are ranked um, to know that the grading systems don't necessarily make any real sense. And, and it's, it's a challenge. I don't, I don't know how to solve it. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, for the end user, when we were recruiting, we need to be aware that actually there's, there's real talent lies deep in the CV rather than necessarily on the, on the, the component parts. Yeah, no, it, it is like we, we've, we've put adverts out and you get hundred CVs and it's like, then I remember we, we had one, so we did it. This is through Indeed that we did it. We had a hundred people came through and then we put this, there was this layer that you could put in there where you had to answer questions but on audio so we thought oh, that's quite interesting we'll put it in and I remember one particular guy like he, he messaged me directly and said you're completely out of order doing this you're going to lose so many people by asking these sort of questions you know you're you, you're you're going to get the wrong person because you you have to go through these hurdles and it's just not going to work for you and I was just like you, you, it's correct. This is well worth doing purely because you've just ruled yourself out purely by your response to a pretty innocuous thing to put in, really. Yeah, and I think I think we have to be open to, to how we group it. One of the things that I was always adamant about was actually we read every every CV because you're right. You know, you can open an advert, particularly for strength and conditioning coaches, um, where you might get 160 applicants, um, and and broadly speaking, I would say everyone has done everything by the book they've they've interned they've got an exos qualification they've 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 been over to um the states now they've probably worked with um jonas and done some sprint analysis they've 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 ticked every box going all at their own cost they've got an msc they've self-funded they're working in three different jobs and and you owe it to everyone to read those cvs but it's a nightmare to try and stand out you know it's it's and, and you know lots of that work you read the discussions on on how much is an inside job versus an outside job and, and how people can break into, into various fields. And, and I think one of my big successes has been to try to make S&C mainstream within medical practice. And, and I think uh, Neil Welsh, who, who got his PhD with me at, at Dublin, um, has done an amazing job of defining S&C's role within rehabilitation uh, and showing really how it can be an incredibly cost-effective solution because coaching is missing in both, I think, many of the physiotherapy roles, um, but also medicine. And, and one of my advice to, to all of my registrars over the last number of years is that we, we need to develop an ability to impart information, and that's where coaching comes in. I think it's why SNC does so well in rehab. 
you know, rehabbing injured patients is no different from, from rehabbing or training uninjured individuals. Um, I, I did six months with Great Britain Hockey uh, over the last six, eight months. Um, and, and the integration of, of strength and conditioning within GB Hockey was a fantastic thing to see. You know, in, in many respects, SNC was taking on a very early lead in rehabilitation of athletes through some pretty innovative matrices of, of return to running and return to hockey. Um, but those SNC guys had some hockey coaching experience. And I think it shows very, very clearly how they can talk one minute to a coach, talk one to an athlete, and then talk to a medical team. And I think it was a very nice blend. Emma Bachelor, as, as head of medical services there, has done a very good job of, of smoothing that transition. Um, but the utilization of support staff is very important, I think. And, and you coaching and the ability to get information across to people is always is always a challenge and something that across the doctors that worked for me in, in Dublin, we were very keen to try and do in terms of a common language, how we explain things, a tendon pack of dry spaghetti, tendonopathy, wet spaghetti within dry spaghetti, um, what we were trying to do at a cellular level, but in terms that people would understand and use that analogy as we describe the MRI images rather than relying on reports. And I think that makes a big difference using those those analogies to, to patients that you would use when you're coaching as well as visual cues. And I think a lot of that translates and it's missing from medicine. You know, you, you only you only need to, to hear about a bad consultation where it's been in, out, he didn't touch me, he told me what was wrong and I needed X. That's awful. We, we don't serve a patient's needs in that. Mm, yeah, no, definitely. Like SNC is that that was a big we were at Therapy Expo uh, last year and met up with Andrew McCauley, who's you know, he's 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 done really well with his SNC course for physios. And it's, I think there's a massive does seem to be a massive gap for that. And there's the demand for that sort of education is, is really growing, which is which is good, isn't it? And uh, even from like the biomechanical standpoint, I was chatting with Phil Graham Smith, who, who you may know as well, and he's saying that a lot of that biomechanical thing is being adopted now in whether it's VALD or all of these different things that are coming in from the, the higher end uh, motion analysis things. What's what's your thoughts on that for me? Because you've you've biomechanics as your side. Yeah, it's a really good question. So my 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 thoughts, my background in biomechanics came from the military in the sense that we we very regrettably had a large number of of servicemen and women who'd lost limbs um, in conflict, and and the available understanding and management of that, fortunately, hadn't really been seen since the Second World War, and so there was a dearth of data in terms of of the mechanics of and the meta, metabolic physiology of of learning to to walk on prosthetics. And so we were building biomechanics around trying to understand the metabolic demands, the changes in prosthetics, the changes in stump, in, in stump quality, to try to make life better for, for, for a large number of people. Um, biomechanics is a phenomenal tool. Um, and I, I started to translate it across to sport on the basis that if you have a high value athlete, is it good enough that we use video or manual Palpation to make an assessment when we have that available technology, but it has an error rate, um, and and a lot of work we've done over the last two or three years in Dublin was very much around trying to quantify that error of gold standard. And motion capture using um, infrared cameras and reflective markers is the gold standard, and there's a significant error rate. So every step you move away from that, so you go to a markerless system or inertial sensors, um, or force plates alone, you take them out and start to try new algorithms, and then you go back to video, 
enhances that error rate. So for example, you might have a 30% error on hip internal rotation using a full motion capture system in a laboratory. It's impossible to quantify that error the further you go on. So, so I think the, the analysis and the interpretation of data is poorer the further you go away from gold standard. And that will always be my, my impression. Of course, the manufacturers of and the sales of, of all of these systems will argue in a very cherry-picked solution, they're accurate. And certainly they are. You know, the VAL data for knee flexion uh, and ankle flexion angles are, are great. And, you know, you look at um, uh, Kitman Labs, who were using, you know, Xbox cameras initially to do shoulder range of motion and, and ankle. Uh, shoulder range of motion with, a, with an Xbox camera, the error rate must be enormous. And, and I know from our work with Adele Fanning, uh, who's in a final year of her PhD in Dublin, uh, looking at return post reconstruction shoulder, we've got a test battery of, of 10 or 12 tests um, looking at shoulder movement in a motion capture lab, incorporating force plates and dynamic movement. And, and yes, you can pull features which are most relevant. And it may be that elbow flexion angle or the rate of elbow flexion is very important, and that can be extrapolated down but you don't get the full picture. So I, I think at best you can extract single features from data sets that are much larger at gold standard and rely on those features. And I'm fine with that. You know, Kitman used to use ankle dorsiflexion range as a predictor for injury. I don't know whether they still do. To me, that's cherry picking data for, for um, certain conditions. And we published work in ACL uh, rehabilitation using features that were able to discriminate against the risk of re-injury and injury, um, and ankle dorsiflexion is important, but it's the rate at which that changes. So it's, the, it's your ability to produce force across the ankle that you can't detect from a range of motion. So that's not range, it's the rate of application of force. And, and I think our ability to change that is clearly through training. One of the interesting things about when I joined Neurotas in terms of, of is there nutritional elements that can make that effect, kept us strong in the trial that we ran at Asantri had a force amplification effect. So you can take a, uh, an extract of fava beans and give that in a very small cell signaling dose, um, which can cause an increase in muscle force amplification, either through ATPase production or, or calcium metabolism at the cell. So it's not necessarily just about training, but the measure that we look at is really important. And that needs to come from large data sets. It can't come from, from small data sets. And we have to be cognizant of the error that every subsequent dilution of the data gives us. So, so what is your thoughts then on like the the kind of the more mainstream adoption of, of this sort of tech that people want a number? I mean, it's saying that it's been used for a long time, like with bioimpedance analysis systems, which you could really question a lot of the accuracy of, of those things and when they're done and so on. So what is your thoughts on like the, the new tech that's coming out there for any of these assessments, which has got very questionable accuracy? Yeah, sure. And, and I think, look, it's it's there's always a quest to, to chase objective data. And and I think it makes life easy because it's a it's becomes binary. And I spend my time now working with machine learning where we really need code in order to to out to to allow us to interpret an outcome because obviously all machine learning is is math and so you you need a binary element in terms of yes no um in order to proceed so so there's an attraction the reality is does it affect patient outcome and i think one of our one of our 
biggest efforts in terms of the work we published over the last 10 years from Sports Surgery Clinic was we, we tried to produce clinically transferable measures so that you didn't need a laboratory, that you could take work on measures uh, as prescriptive tools in certain scenarios. But that took 700 patients, it took a team of 12 people, and it took 15 publications to provide those variables. So the chances of you're a club of taking a, a data stream from within the club, which usually you're sharing in a de-identified way from the people behind that, that system, so they're learning from your data, um, is pretty slight. You can use it to reinforce your own ability, and that's fine, but you're not going to gain necessarily any enormous insight um, out with a large data set that someone else is going to own. And, and data sets naturally should be proprietary because there's great value in them. And so if you're a football club, you might learn something significant looking at your academy players over five years. But are you going to learn something by introducing force velocity analysis in year one um, without having complete control over the training program? No. And I think it's almost applied at the wrong point. So who designs the training program for the club, the, the competition schedule? Who designs um, when we when a session's hard and when when's not a session's hard? Everyone's an influence aside from the coach. So so ultimately, if you can't change something, why measure it? You're just adding noise to the data set. But I think the danger at the moment is we're adding noise without a clear indication of what we're trying to do. And 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 that's what I was very cautious of. I didn't want to. You clearly nobody can have, not everyone can have a 3D lab in their in their practice. It prevents us and it doesn't it doesn't uh, allow widespread adoption. Um, but labs with a decent enough source of patients, and one of the benefits of, of Dublin was we had an enormous number of patients. So we were doing thousand ACL repairs or reconstructions a year, and, and that was a steady stream. If you're a university, you might get 20 of those. And, and 10 universities are unlikely to collaborate together. So there's a problem with data sourcing. Um, and I know ISEH uh, with Farris Dowd have just started to recruit to try an NHS trial and taking some of the data that we were using in post-ACL, see if you can bring it into the NHS. And I think that makes sense. But ultimately, those large data sets and that lab need to extract features, which can be interpreted by the lower down systems. And I think the danger is they're sold on giving you the same data set at the the gold standard will give you, which they never will. Yes, there'll be advanced in technology, they'll become more accurate, but but ultimately there's an error rate that's not worked on. And I, and I think um, Eric McFadden, uh, who left Dublin recently, is part of his PhD at University of Roehampton, looked at those error rates, and, and in time they're quite substantial. And it, it's down to the quality of training of the staff who are putting on the markers and the measurements of markers. And that obviously has an element of human error, um, but also if you kind of imagine skin fat, muscle, all move. And so even though you're putting a marker on a bony landmark, you don't know for sure it's there, but you've got a marker. As soon as you take markers out of the, the equation, you don't know what's moving. And as soon as you take that, that, those three or four cameras out of the system and go through a single iPhone, you're using algorithmic extrapolation of data, which is a poorer quality. So, so it's a challenge. And, and I, I, I can see the attraction. And, you know, who's an SNC coach who hasn't got force plate data right now? I, you know, Force plates are are almost as essential tool as a whistle and a notebook. So you know it's a little bit like GPS. I've always been pretty anti anti GPS and its rapid adoption. I, I remember a podcast with De Prampio on the and we argued about its usage in the sense that the accuracy rate, particularly in decelerations in small sided games, is so poor that that your 
you're getting an objective number, but it's comparability, or more importantly, it's reproducibility is not great. And I think that's a significant challenge. Um, we have to look at the quality of the data that you've got before you actually start to interpret it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a challenging one, isn't it? Because as you said, like you, you can get a 3D force plate or a 2D one with, you know, most of the 2D with like the valve stuff and, and the other ones that are coming through. And then do you want do you want that 3D data, but do you want it to be usable? Do people know how to use it to look at? Are they going to analyze all of that information? So it's a whole minefield. So, yeah, we're, not, we're not gonna, definitely not going to solve it on this. No, and I think actually something that, that was very interesting. I always done a lot of work on athletic groin pain. And, and of all the published work that we've got, one of the common features that we found was that ankle rate of force development was deficient in a lot of people. If we look at ACL injury and ACL rehabilitation, ankle rate of force development, again, is deficient in lots of people. Because if you kind of imagine a scenario where you're spending more time in contact with the ground, there's more chance for everything above that to change. And I used to argue commonly, and Brian podiatrist would laugh listening to this, um, I used to argue everything was top down, like you, you, need, you can't adjust the tracking on a flat tire. But actually, I'm wrong. I've evolved in thinking. But biomechanics has taught me that actually the, the stiffness of the spring the stiffness of the ankle, the ability to produce torque is vital because if it's in contact with the ground too long, you've got potential to injure further up the chain or you've got potential for the weak point to give. 2D force plates are really useful in assessing that, but they're not useful in assessing the ankle independently without creating a, a contraption which has error in it to isolate the ankle itself. So, so the measure is common. And I think more work needs to be done on identifying features using better systems across clinical studies to advise the most effective ways of changing in terms of a biologically assisted rehab matrix um, to be able to provide those answers, which then can be applied everywhere. And you can use whatever tool you like then, try to guide and try and focus on that, that um, improvement. I'd love to do a trial looking only at rehabilitating athletic groin pain by focusing on ankle stiffness, because there's a proportion of people, regardless of all cause of groin pain, that that will fix. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is, it is really, really interesting area. And, and so when you went into Santry then, so was it with a remit to do the biomechanical side or what was your what was your overall remit when you went in? Um, it, it was it was to build a practice. Um, the, the CEO at the time, a guy called Jeff Moylan, was very, very visionary about what he he wanted to do. Uh, and and Ray Moran, who was the one of the owners and and ACL surgeon posed a question was like if people will travel around the world to see bill knowles um to, to rehab at his his center um, and people will travel the world to have surgery because of a surgeon why could could dublin not become a destination for rehabilitation and i i'm pretty proud by the fact that in our last in my last year there we had over 200 different clubs from all over the world use um the sports surgery clinic as a as a destination for rehabilitation but I was looking for a point of difference. And I, and I believe that biomechanics could give us that point of difference. And it was a gargantuan task. You know, we produced 40 papers plus um, with no real budget, uh, and which is greater than many university departments with, with grant funding and the like. And, and the board was supportive of that process. Um, we were using, in many respects, research publications, many of which in, in British Journal of Sports Medicine, so a high impact factor as PR. And, and that brought those patients from afar you know we, we were very fortunate to treat some very high caliber athletes um based on that prescription model um but it it, it took a long time to get and and but as uh, alongside that we didn't advertise 
And so we, the, the focus was always on, on the patients. And, and you know, we, we went to 50,000 patients a year uh, before I left. So it, it's, a, it's been a pretty big growth process. And, and it was a real privilege to be able to marry research alongside that process. Um, and also to develop many, many practitioners' careers, um, building PhDs, which is very integral, I felt, to, to practitioner development, to be able to identify features to select. And, and, and the King went off to, to Aspatar, uh, Neil Welsh uh, there, Adele Fanning, and, uh, and a lot of biomechanics uh, staff who've done some phenomenal work, Shane Gore and, and Chris Richter uh, and um, Kieran McFadden. And was it always something from, from your side? Did, did your role grow and change as you were there then throughout that 10 years? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I started I started providing medical services. So Aina Fowley was the Irish team doctor, and I used to nip over from London to, to cover for him uh, when he was away. And um, I remember very vividly my first day walking in the 24-patient list, um, which which sports medicine doesn't do. So I think one of the one of the challenges in training of sports medicine, particularly in in the UK and Ireland, is the volume of patients. And and I walked into three days of twenty four patients. And and to give you an idea, pretty much every one of those patients had an MRI scan um, after the consultation that was designed immediately afterwards. Um, so I would have a patient returning on the same day with a hot MRI without a report, um, uh, wanting an answer for what what the MRI showed. So I, I would be sitting with an anatomy app, um, the, the MRI and the patient. So that 24 patients was really 48 patients. And, and I walked out on my first day, having started at eight, at 11 o'clock in the evening, um, still dictating as I walked back to the hotel to start the following day, I thought better at seven o'clock. And, and the, the admin team at the time, Rachel Ryan, uh, who's still there today, uh, was chuckling, thinking, you know, she'd been told we need to make money from him. We need to fill the list. Uh, the list was jammed. And, and at the time, I, I'm not ashamed to say it, my knowledge of Irish geography was so poor. Patients could be traveling from Mayo or Ballinar, uh, where Joe Biden currently is, um, in the far west of Ireland. And it's a good four hour journey. It, on the map, it, it looks about an hour. So patients would travel from as far as that or far deep in Kerry, which is below Cork, um, four hours to come for a consultation. And whereas someone around the corner could be literally around the corner. And I think that's the, the scope of practice there is that people will travel for expertise, but it's vital they go away with a diagnosis. And there's a lot of, a lot of discord on, on Twitter mainly about patients and, and what we need and what we don't need. And I, I disagree vigorously, patients don't need a diagnosis. They need confidence in the team that are looking after them. And I'd rather be wrong with that diagnosis. I would always give them a percentage opportunity to say, look, I think, you know, I'm, I'm 80% sure, I'm 70% I'm sure. And what I would have loved to get to a model was that I could give a live data reading of the number of patients with the same condition and how long they were in treatment. Because very often, if you have a meniscal tear, a surgeon will say, it's four and a half K, you'll have your, your arthroscopy and meniscal repair, and then my job is done. The patient thinks I'm fixed, clearly they're not. With rehab, we're horrible at it. So you've got Achilles tendinopathy. We say you've got Achilles tendinopathy. One practice might use interferential. One practice might use loading. Someone might recommend collagen supplementation. Someone might recommend plyo. Someone, I mean, our standardized care is, is, is awful. But equally, we're terrible at a model. You know, how many patients have you seen? Your patients used to come to see us 
in Dublin for ACL rehabilitation, not because we were brilliant necessarily, but we published. But also we were looking after a thousand patients plus a year. If you're a football club, you might be unlucky to have two. And so there's a currency of doing something lots and failing with those patients. You need to make failures in order to be able to understand what you need to change. And we're using data to try to minimize those failures. Um, but that I think that I think that journey is very important. So we were trying to to uh, I guess learn from our mistakes, and I I made a lot of mistakes in the, those early days of seeing that volume of patients. But I think it's essential. You need to be responsible and registrars that that I've I've taught and trained over the last three or four years um, needed to be exposed to that volume of patients because without it, you need to be able to look. If you're going to use MRI as a tool, you need to be able to interpret it yourself. And, and you need to be able to explain that in, in terms of patient will understand. And, and I, I think I've managed to do that in the Irish training program, but I, I worry about training programs across the board because of a lack of exposure to patients. And do you think that you, you mentioned about the failure and embracing that? Did you think that at the time as well, or is that something that retrospectively you think? Definitely retrospective. So, so at the time, my main focus was AI was English and Ireland. Um, and so there was in, in some circumstances a and naturalized ex-military English in Ireland, which was even more uh, challenging. Um, there was, there was, I needed to make friends. I needed to win that patient over and I needed to service the demand. And I brought with it a very private UK practice mentality in the sense that, you know, a private patient in, in England might expect a coffee in a newspaper um, and sit in a nice waiting room. That's not what we were offering. You know, 24 patients a day coming back to your, your results. We weren't able to offer that, that environment. It was too busy, it was packed. You know, there was standing room only often in the waiting waiting rooms. And um, but but one of Anafarvi's great um I think message to me early on was that we we wanted to care, we wanted to give them what they needed, we wanted to minimize the back and forth, but we wanted to give them a plan on the day. So so we we didn't charge at that point for physio contact. We we delivered the first bit of rehab on the day as part of that overall consultation. And, and so you'd come. You get a diagnosis, you get a scan, you look at that scan, you'd be confirmed in that diagnosis pathway, and off you'd go. And certainly, I've recruited physios in the past, I couldn't environment. The shortest time I've had a physio work in the environment was a few hours. They came in, couldn't work in that environment, and, and moved on. But it's, it's, it's a challenge, and, and I, think, I think it worked very well. Well, we grew. We grew from 500 to 50,000 patients. So there was the success both financially, but also the patients improved, and it's, it's been noticeable the message I've got after I've left in terms of patients seeking that elsewhere, that, that it's not widely done. So I think the, the, it was retrospective, my review of failure, not, not at the time. I, was, I needed to make friends and give them a diagnosis. Yeah, no, no, I can appreciate that. And were you actually living in Ireland or were you commuting in? No, I, I'd fly in from, from England and I would I'd hotel stay. There was a hotel about 600 meters down the road from the clinic. And I would, I would probably done, I'd say close on 600 nights in that hotel. Um, and um, not my favorite place. <laughs> and, um, and I'd walk down the road, see the patients and walk back. So what was that like then? Just like, did literally, did you, you must've got into the city, I'm sure. What like? um, Andy, to be honest, for the first year, I saw the airport, the hotel and the clinic. It became a passion. I was I was absolutely devoted to the mission. I, I was determined to bring international patients to the clinic. I, I was determined to restructure and, and grow. And, and a lot of that restructuring was was brutal. There was there was some redundancy. There was some there was some changes of focus. 
um, and, and real urgency of action. And it wouldn't be unusual to have many of the teams sat back there at 11 or 12 o'clock at night planning how we were going to focus. And, and it's important to, to emphasize that because you, know, you can look at the journey and say, yeah, you've got a PhD, you've got 60, 70 papers, you've written two textbooks. No one paid me to do research. Every bit of that research was, was done in addition to seeing 24 patients a day. It, it's all been self-driven. And, and I've been fortunate to be able to build into people's diaries and calendars some research time. So our, our newer physios who would be on PhD tracks would have a day and a half a week dedicated to PhD work. A lot of that would be patient-driven and they'd be seeing patients that were part of that PhD outcome study. But, but that, that ethos I, I needed from the team because ultimately it was a commercial clinic and it, was, it, it had to make money and it, it, it was, that was the bottom line and it, was, it, it couldn't just be about research, it couldn't be about the journey. Yeah, and then when you talk about some of the recruitment going on there, so how would you how would you recruit there? So we've mentioned now again, was that a retrospective thing that you're looking at beyond the CV and through the gaps that aren't written there? How how would you what were you looking for when you recruited? Oh, it, it was it was definitely it was definitely live. So we made some mistakes, and and I think again owning up to those mistakes, I, I put people in wrong roles. I, I probably over promoted SSC at sometimes um, without the necessarily leadership or management skill that. I've, I've got the physio SNSD balance at times wrong, um, and I focus on the wrong bits of PhD activity at times. Um, I think ultimately it was about trying to balance the team. One of our faults, and our, uh, I think it's a good learning point, is we tended to recruit more of the same. So, so we, were, we were averse from recruiting people that would challenge the, the methodology. Um, I don't think that was intentional, but when I look back, that's what we did. Was that to our best advantage? I'm not sure. We still had good output and we did well clinically, and I, I don't think it was a fault. But I'm, I'm, I'm building a team at Neurotas at the moment. And what I've asked my individual managers very much so is to challenge the decisions I make now because we've got one opportunity to get this right. And so as we build teams, we want hungry, driven innovators who see Neurotas as a, a reason or a, um, a platform to express their innovation. And, and healthcare is not very good at that because we get overtaken by a job description and we get overtaken by a percentage return um, on salary. We get overtaken by, and you only need to see the, the criticism osteopathy and chiropractor gets in terms of that model of multiple visits and, and, and therefore a, a potential for profiteering. Uh, business is business in the, at the end of the day. You know, it, it, healthcare is a business in private medicine. And, and I think you know, people are very averse to, to raise prices. If you have a skill set where uh, it's relatively unique, the price reflects that. And, and where, where if you're a clinician, there are only 24 hours in a day and there are only seven days a week. And if you're the service and you're the, you're, you're the unique element of it, you there's a capacity, there's a ceiling on what you can earn from that, that process. And I think one of the big career blocks for many people down the way is that that ceiling becomes dissatisfaction. You, you can't earn more. You're excellent at your job and you're only getting better at it. But the way to reward that, there's ultimately a ceiling. You can only see a certain number of patients. You can charge a certain amount of money and you can't change. And so I think excellence often struggles 
with that artificial ceiling because that you can't see you don't know what's out there you don't know what else you don't know where your skill set will transfer to i think i've been very fortunate in being able to to make that move and i think the military gave me that that ability i you'd be forced to go from one job to another from every nine months at times and you never had the skill set in my head i, I you know I, I was i was responsible at one point for inspecting medical centers against a standard benchmark very much like cqc i didn't have a clue I had no idea where you can find the benchmark standards. And, and yet then I had to re-engineer the whole process. But but that's great because it gives you challenge and it gives you opportunity and focus. And so I think it's it's a it's something that that we do badly in healthcare because we, we get bogged down with the job and, and not look at necessarily other ways of doing that job. Yeah, no, we were talking before about that, and I think it's really important and it's very easy to just get like in COVID, I, I would normally be out three three times a week minimum um, pre-COVID. Now I'm in the office probably four days a week and I don't particularly enjoy that aspect of it. But, you know, we were talking about productivity and time blocking and all of these things and trying to be effective with it. But it is really important to spend time looking at creativity and and doing that is for me anyway. This is what I want to be doing. Um, So in terms of like for you, how do you do that? Like we, we talked about self-help and professional development and so on how do you make sure that you're doing that alongside everything else that you're doing yeah i think i think that evolved I, and i i think time to think is desperately important and and for for one big period of my life I, I was living in australia and working in ireland so i would i would every month jump on a plane to melbourne um and i'd have a 22-hour flight which was great thinking time and 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 at the time there was no internet on planes and so it was it was relatively quiet um I've become a big believer in Pomodoro in terms of taking those 25 minute work blocks and then leaving five minutes of just downtime between 25 minute work blocks. And I think that ties in very well with Parkinson's law in terms of setting a deadline. So work expands to fill the space that you give it. And so setting tight deadlines and and giving yourself 25 minutes on a, on a project, it, it keeps you fresh. And um, particularly in my role at the moment where I might be jumping from data science to cell biology to VC discussions to um, marketing, being able to jump from one thing to another, I think helps. And I think that applies very well to healthcare. You can take a step back though and say, well, actually if I'm a practitioner in clinic, how does that work? Because I've got X number of appointments, but I think you need to build in time to be able to think because at various stages of that journey, I've become obsessed with or focused on on one piece, which is sometimes being the wrong piece. I was tasked with starting a research foundation for the, the clinic and I built a scientific advisory board, but there were insurmountable challenges in terms of the business that we probably could have looked at earlier and decided that it wasn't going to work. Um, but um, between Pomodoro and Parkinsonian, uh, I think those two are really good guides. Um, everyone says they're an avid reader, but we were touching on this earlier on in terms of, of, of the, there is pressure. There's pressure to be current and, and learn. And and I, I was saying one of my, my favorite apps is Pocket, where you can um, download the page that you're looking at to, to, a, to an app. It's available offline, so you can read it on the plane or you can read it on the tube. Um, and But there's a there's a knowledge accumulation there, which is great. But as I said to you earlier, like I've got 120 uh, notifications in Pocket of things that I think are important. We're halfway through the month. If I don't have time to clear them, am I ever going to utilize them? And some of that is because I'm I'm in a new field. I'm looking at proteomics and I'm trying to understand antibodies. I'm trying to understand protein pockets and machine learning of them. So lots of it's new, but but equally, 
you know, there's a limit to, to what we can do. And, and we were talking about Audible earlier on. And, and, and I think we need to make snapshot judgments in, in, in many respects as to what, what value it does. I subscribe to Short Form, who, who will read the book for you effectively and give you a short encapsulation of it. I think you lose the nuances. One of the best books I've read was a thing called The One Thing. Um, and it's a, it's a lovely idea that you have one thing to focus on every day. And I think it fits with Pomodoro very well because we all have to-do lists and to-do lists just get longer and longer and longer. But I think the one thing takes a real, uh, takes a real focus on it. And I brought that into my data science teams at the moment in terms of tell me the one thing this week that we're gonna fix or is the main focus or is the main problem. And, and, and I'll give you an example. We were, we were discussing um, at the start of the week, one thing in data and, and you can imagine the amount of data a mass spectrometer produces. It's, it's essentially coding proteins um, into a string of numerical um, uh, or word letters, alpha and alpha medical letters, and it, it produces millions of bits of data. And so the, the one thing on that list was build a process to export data automatically or, or whatever. But I also asked them for the next five because I want to understand prioritization because prioritization is important. But actually for me, the fact that the data backup was failing was on was third on the list and I couldn't understand why that wasn't number one on the list so I think by taking that approach in terms of how we prioritize and what is the most important thing we need to get done today is something that I brought through SSE through through to my to Neurotask is really important um, but I think it's building time it's building time to be able to address it and I think if you can find an hour in the day Pomodoro works 25 minutes five minutes 25 minutes five minutes to be able to switch through two topics and I, and I love one thing in terms of being able to focus on on what to, to pull in there. Um, as for reading, I love it. I, I, I love learning. And I think my 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 reading has has gone through um, I guess for, for passion I would read autobiographies because I love learning from other people in a in a very wide field. And the the leadership management books um, I, I sort of flick flacked around. I, I I've looked at um the next work in terms of marketing because it's a big part of my my new role but but also i think you can learn some life lessons but i, I think i've learned more over the last 18 months on looking at the startup world the grind world of networking and and because there are lots of people in the same space and our ability to network within healthcare is pretty poor we you know people say you you should surround yourself by five people at a higher level than you in order to build your growth. That's very hard to do. It's very hard to do without a very strong mentor. And it, it, it's, it's relatively easy in junior career. I think it's an awful lot harder as you get higher up. I'm very fortunate to have been given mentors in my new role, um, which, which is phenomenal for me personally. Um, but I think it's vital for everyone to try and find somebody who can, can give you some of that insight we were talking about earlier, what Google need to learn while you're at school. If you're going to want to work for McKinsey, what do McKinsey need along that, that way? What jobs actually exist at McKinsey? You know, how do you get into banking? How do you work for Grant Thomas or, or, or for PwC? What's available? Because healthcare becomes very insular. And there's a whole world out there that's not healthcare. And the talent that's in healthcare, because of the standards, of, 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 I think, to get into it, and also the pressures of working in 
professional sport or private practice or clinical uh, or in academic um, medicine are incredibly transferable out of that environment. But, but in order to know what's out there, there needs to be a, a shepherd along the way, but also a teacher at the end. And I, and I don't think they're very readily available. And, and I think, you know, we have to, to, to look back. And I think I was very fortunate in my, in my early medical career to met Kelvin Giles and Vern Gambetta. Um, two guys who I think have given more back to the strength and conditioning industry than, than anybody. Um, often criticized, often, I say criticized for dinosaur or, or, or old school behavior. I think that's so far from the truth. I think anyone who says that doesn't know them or hasn't actually looked at what they, they are. I think Kelvin Giles was innovative um, beyond belief in terms of a, of a matrix system of assessment of physical competencies. And, and I think Vernon Gambetta's ability to break down coaching um, across the board um, is, is phenomenal. But both have reached down to help other people along that track. And I think, I think that's one of the things, one of my goals, I, I would say, for my next two or three years is to try and reach back down the track because I've jumped from, from one part of medicine to another and been very fortunate for the Navy to, to help me along that way in my early career. I then hit a very low where I didn't have that mentoring that, that I was self-determined. Um, but now I've, I've got that, that transition again. And I think, I think a lot of people are lost in healthcare who have an awful lot to give outside of it, but the world appears closed off. Uh, I think it's an exciting time to be able to, to look outside where they might be. Yeah, no, I, I definitely can see what you mean. I think it is quite insular in, in what they do and they're getting on with what they're doing. And then it's, when you, it is noticeable when someone like you say steps out of that, it's probably it's not that common when you actually see and you're going into a, that different environment, which is, yeah, it's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, I'm going to check out one thing and I've, I've, I've not heard, although it did sound like it was six things when you said it's one thing plus the next five. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing. One thing you have to get done. It's a, it's a, it's a great it's a, I think it's a great resource. It's a, it's a phenomenal way of approaching life. Yeah, no, it's good. And then just any autobiography recommendations? What the ones you've done recently? I'm, I'm a big fan too of those. Do you know, I, 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 it's, it's more a case of what I didn't like and what I, what, <laughs> it's probably more intuitive what I, I, I didn't like than, uh, than, than I did. I guess one of my favourites has been Schwarzenegger. I, a phenomenal man has, has jumped careers multiple times. And, and has become, at various stages, was it unbelievably driven. The early years, you know, where, where he was commercially astute enough to put money into a business that, that in terms of building, um, some phenomenal side stories about buying land and wanting to build an airport and, and random stuff. The, the bridge and the determination to go from bodybuilding into, into acting and then subsequently acting into politics. You can criticize that part. You can criticize the politics. You can criticize lots about the end man but the journey's phenomenal and 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 the audiobook is well worth it because you get to you get to listen to him uh, in the first couple of chapters um which are which are equally phenomenal um on a similar vein there's an autobiography called who is michael ovitz michael ovitz is a a media talent manager uh, and that that under describes him, but but to to try and encapsulate it in a in a sentence is would be would be remiss. Again, phenomenal journey, self determination, but but use multiple hats at various times to build an empire in in 
both athlete and media representation. Great book for multiple stories along the way in terms of who he's represented and, and, the, and the various deals done along the way. And overlaps of it with Schwarzenegger because the whole Schwarzenegger-Stallone saga where they were competing against each other in a similar space is, is, is a great story. But um, for, for me, two of those, I, I, think, I think they're, they're, they're definitely high on the list. Um, and, um, and I'd recommend wholeheartedly. Mm, yeah, I, I love Schwarzenegger. Just again, would you, 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 you just summarised it well there. But to become the absolute best at pretty much everything he did, those three different careers yeah. shows a massive character. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, it's 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 a it's an insight into drive, but also an insight into how you can fail and restart, which I think is really powerful. And have you done Phil Knight's Shoe Dog? Yeah, again, big fan, a big fan of it. Um, I, I think there's bits missing from that though that I'd love to hear. That there's, there's, it, it's as with all of these things. When when I think you follow a follow an empire being built, I, I think you you learn more from the failings. And he gives you some of that, but he doesn't give the shoes he stepped on. And 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 he's definitely stepped on some shoes. And and he's he's definitely being cutthroat at various times that understandably are glossed over and i and i and i i don't i don't love i, I mean i think you know the, the the one that's not a biography and it's still ongoing but is a fascinating story is elizabeth holmes um and and the theranos story and and the what's that one what, who's that? it's a it's a elizabeth holmes is is about to start a jail term in the u.s um, she was she was once uh, number one on the Forbes list of new entrepreneurs and modeled herself on Steve Jobs. She she invented um, a a micro blood capillary system that could give you blood results from a from a capillary, um, but sadly it didn't work. And but she she sold investments and had Secretary of State of the U.S. on on the board. And and there's a there's a whole story of of intrigue and deceit and and startup culture in in med tech which is a, a phenomenal story um i think it's a i think it's a netflix show or a or a prime show as well as a as a um as, as a as an ongoing story but um phenomenal lessons learned along that way yeah no i'll check that one out and i know i've kept you for ages here, so apologies last last one here so i know you mentioned that when you visited facebook beforehand just tell me what 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 you saw that resonated with you there Sure. And I, and I think, you know, I was critical of this. I walked into Facebook um, and and there were signs everywhere, sort of motivational signs as you walked in through the turnstiles as they checked in and out staff. And um, it, it was it was better done than perfect. So so and at the time that reson that message didn't resonate at all. It was a case of. Like, surely you need to get something done to execution to, to a level like what's the point in doing something badly? So, you know, do something badly better than completes better than 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 good. Didn't make sense. I've learned a lot from that. You need something on paper. Something needs to be finished. And I think that Parkinsonian law in terms of a task expanding to fill the time available to it. If you set something a deadline, you've got something to work on and it can be refined. Too often we allow things to drift. We, we're very unwilling to fail or to say no or to stop something. And I think that better done than perfect is a real message for that. It's better to know than not know. So you need to commit, you need to throw everything at it, get it done, and then make a decision. And otherwise it's very difficult to make a decision. And I've, I've learned a lot from it, it's helped me a lot in the last 12 months. 
Yeah, seems to go back to actually what you said about your diagnosis of people as well and just committing to something and right. with, with putting that around. Brilliant. Look, really appreciate your time. I've really enjoyed it. There's loads of other books I'd love to brainstorm with you, but may maybe for another time. But best of luck. Congratulations on the new role and best of luck with it. And I look forward to seeing how it all goes for you. Absolutely. Annie, thank you very much. No problem. Cheers, Andy. Thank you. Yes.